can turn in your Bible to Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the Bible, the end of the story. We all like the end of the story, the, the resolution, the, the completion that it brings to us. I don't know if you've heard of this, but there is a sort of people who likes to go to the end of the story first. Maybe you're that sort of people? I don't know. Hopefully not. At least when it comes to normal stories. But this story, there is a reason we're given the end, even before we get there. It's good to know the end from the beginning, even. And this is a story that God knew the end from the beginning. If you ever watched a, a, a movie or a series or something like that, where it was clear that the creators didn't know where they were going with it when they started. It's really confusing, really dissatisfying. There's that critique of the most recent Star Wars movies that they clearly didn't have the end in mind when they were making all the decisions that they made. And I was talking about that with my my siblings just last week. And um, it, it can be really frustrating, but God knows the end from the beginning. It's satisfying when the things from the beginning work out in the end. They're woven together, and the things that were mentioned and details, everything works together. And that is what we have here in Scripture, and it's in the ultimate sense. Every detail, every theme, every strand of God's story, every part of human history finds its resolution here. There's a little taste of of, of that, if you remember, back when we started in Genesis months ago, we were talking about the certain aspects of God, what he created life to be like, and then that was going to be revisited at the end. This is an example of that. The beginning in Genesis, we find these major themes, creation, and then Satan's freedom when he brought sin into the world and was given freedom in the earth. And right after that was worldwide judgment, and then we came to the Tower of Babel when there's confusions and all these things. The end of the book, and we don't get to go through all of these themes and chapters, but we find the destination and the the fulfillment of Babylon and Babel, its end, and after that is worldwide judgment, then Satan's confinement right before where we're going to pick up in chapter 21, Satan's confinement, and then the new creation, the patterns, the themes are are reversed and then woven together, and all their details find their story in here. And it's it's tempting to to try to follow all of those threads and themes, and we just will not be able to do that this morning, Uh, but we will try to get in as many as we can. Uh, it's also helpful as, as we're approaching this, and, and when you're reading the Bible in general, whether you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or, or in Revelation, that you understand the, the basic framework of, of what is happening, so you can put all those details in where they go. Uh, so just in a simple sense, uh, this is the, the, the timeline that, that we are dealing with. We are in the, the, the church age now, and I won't go into all the details of what came before that. What is coming next is a period we understand of tribulation. It's the beginning of God's final judgments on earth. So there will be a time when there will be judgment, but the the church will not be here. 
After that, we have the millennial kingdom. There'll be a time when Jesus Christ will come to earth. He will be physically on the throne of David for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. It's not the millennial generation ruling, thankfully. It is Jesus ruling on the throne of David in person, but there is still sinners. There's still evil in the world. Not everything has been made new again yet. There, there's that point in time, and sometimes you read the Bible and it's talking about that. There's a different point in time that we're going to be talking about this morning. This is the eternal kingdom, and sometimes those are collectively referred together as the kingdom, the intermediary millennial kingdom. It's getting ready for eternity, but we're going to mainly focus on the eternal kingdom this morning. After everything is all done, when Jesus makes all things new again, evil is gone, Satan is confined, judgment has been carried out. So we're going to look this morning, chapter 21 and 22. We're going to look at what John sees here. This is the Apostle John being given a vision of what is to come, and that's mainly what the whole book of Revelation is, is about, John being able to, to get this preview. We're going to see many of the details that he highlights, what that will be like, what eternity will be like. And as we do, we're going to be asking the question, okay, that's what life is going to be like, and it's going to look like what life was supposed to be like, and we're going to be asking and answering the question, so why is it not that way now? Why does it have to be made new? You probably already know many of those answers. There'll be lots of details with that. Even though we're looking at lots of those details, we don't want to lose sight of a focus on the supremacy and the glory of God. What is to come is more than just the details. It is the glory of God on full display, and he who deserves the right glory for everything. And then we'll also look at just the, the closing admonitions and, and warnings that John gives us as he sums up this book of Revelation. If you will, pray with me so that we will be able to turn our hearts to those things this morning. God, we pray, we thank you for your revelation to us, what you've revealed of yourself throughout all of history. And we, we thank you that we find ourselves looking at the end of the story here and that you've given us that. God, we pray that you would let it have its work in us, that it would give us the hope that you intend us to have, it would give us the, the focus on you that you deserve, and it would also give us the the marching orders of how to live our life now until then. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Read with me as we begin. I'll read the first eight verses of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son." 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We look at life here, the the beginnings of the new heaven and new earth. We're looking at life as it should have been. And the first part of that is the new heavens and the new earth, specifically the heavens and the earth, the created cosmos. New heavens and new earth can kind of be a collective term of everything that God is doing here, but there's specifically the actual created material heavens and earth are going to be made new. And when I say heavens, I understand that to be the first two heavens. There are three heavens mentioned in scripture, our atmosphere, uh, all of the skies, the, the, the sun, moon, stars, all of the universe outside of that, that's the second heaven. And then the third heaven would be the place where God dwells. They're saying that the heavens are being made new. There's a new heavens and new earth. I think he's meaning the specific created heavens, the first two heavens. Like he said in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. These are going to be made new. Again, let's ask ourselves, why do they need to be made new? The original cosmos that was created by God out of the words of his mouth was good. It was very good. But soon after that, we see that it was cursed. Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, the earth was cursed as a result of man's sin. Soon after that, it was destroyed by a flood. We understand from Romans that it is groaning in expectation from that time till now, till the end, where again it will be destroyed, this time by fire, not by flood, but by fire. We find that in Second Peter. Pastor Matt spoke on that just last week. And then we come to this, where it will be recreated again. And I think this time we're supposed to understand again by the words of God's mouth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. It's summarized in verse 1 of Revelation. Uh, But God says, we we see the words of his mouth down to 5 and 6. He who's on the throne, he says this, I am making all things new. And then he says in verse 6, it is done by the words of his mouth Again, so we have a new creation. This is new in chronology. Obviously, it's new. It's after the older one. Uh, So that's one aspect of it. Uh, I don't think it's going to be done away with. I think we should understand this to mean it's going to be purified. It's not going to be completely destroyed and then completely made new. Uh, it's the word destroyed is used, but it's in the same sense that the word is used when it, the flood happened in Genesis 6. We are told that the earth was destroyed by flood, but not all the material parts of the earth were destroyed and then remade. It was just cleaned by the flood. It was purified by the flood. And I think we should understand that here, that the, the fire will also purify. And when that happens, then we get the new heavens and the new earth the way they were supposed to be. And we get a picture of that as a garden. Does that ring a bell? Remember from Genesis chapter 1. The new heavens and the new earth, the way it was supposed to be, the way things should have been, is again a garden. We're told that there is a river of life in verse 6. And in chapter 22, verse 1, the river of life, the spring of water of life. And what does that river of life feed? It gives us the tree of life. The tree of life was described in the original Garden of Eden, the tree of life. On the either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, 
yielding its fruit each month. I'm not sure what it means that the tree is on both sides of the river. One tree, both sides of the river. That will be, that will be interesting to understand when our faith is made sight. In this new creation, there are some things that are the same as the way they are now. We're told, I just read the verse about the, the tree yielding its fruit each month. Month, right? That's a, a frame of time. There is a cycle of time that will happen in the new creation. We're not going to go into eternity like it was in the past, before there was creation. Actually, time is part of what God created. It's part of the dimension that God created, and that will continue on in the new creation. There will be time. But there are some things that, that won't, yeah, obviously that won't mean we'll get older, thankfully. Time will keep passing, but we won't get older and older and feel it in our bones. Some other things that are going to be different about this new creation, we read in verse 1, the sea will be no more. There will be no sea. Obviously, that doesn't mean there's no water. We're told there's a river of life, but there is not a sea. In original creation, sea was contrasted with the land, where man was supposed to dwell, and the sea was not where man was supposed to dwell. And the sea, actually throughout the rest of Scripture, is treated somewhat with a a connotation of judgment. The sea was what brought about the destruction of the first earth, the destruction of the earth the first time with the flood. The sea came. The sea was parted so that Israel could walk through it. And then it was used to judge the nation of Egypt right after that. So there will be no more sea. There's no more connotation of judgment. There's no more place where man cannot dwell. All of this is prepared so that man can dwell in it. Another thing we're told is different is that there will be no sun. That's a little bit outside of the paragraph I just read down in verse 23, 25. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. There will be no night there. Why is there no sun? Because God himself will be the light. God and Lamb. We'll get to that more in a little bit. So some things are going to be different Some things are going to be largely the same, but it's going to be new. It's going to be new in chronology, but it's also going to be new in in quality and kind. It's going to be what it should have been, and I will submit to you, it's going to be even better than Eden. It's going to be new in quality. The curse is gone. The curse that we mentioned, Genesis chapter 3, cursed is the ground because of you, In pain you shall eat out of it all the days of your life. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. We are promised that the curse will be gone. The question was asked in one of the songs that we sang just a few minutes ago. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel that? I think we all do. Lots of different ways we can feel that. It's all because of the curse. It's all because of sin. But, Revelation 21, we read, the former things have passed away. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Death shall be no mourning. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Death is gone. This is what was prophesied in Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe every tear from all faces. No more loved ones dying. No more tragic, unexpected deaths. 
No more homicide. No more suicide. No more genocide. No more abortion. No more death of babies. No more tears or crying. There are no more reasons to mourn in this place. There's no more loneliness. There's no more heartache over broken relationships. There's no more arguing with your spouse. No more sinning against each other. There's no more pain, no more physical pain. There's no more cancer. There's no more seizures or allergies, my sons. There's no more broken bones, no more fibromyalgia. There's no more feeling old in your joints. No more waking up feeling pain because your bed is uncomfortable. Every other aspect of the curse, all the former things are passed away. He's making all things new. There's no more broken vehicles. There's no more house repairs. There's no more varmints. No more inflation. No more gas hikes. No more tax hikes. All these things are passed away. And again, evil is no more. It's before these these chapters we're looking at. But all evil has been judged. Satan is confined. There is no more sin. And this is only the beginning of what we can hope for in the new heavens and the new earth. This is just the beginning. The next part of what life should have been like, what life will be like, is when we look at man in creation, man and creation. The new heavens and the new earth obviously includes us humans. Our physical bodies will be resurrected. We'll have physical bodies in there. But I want to focus, as this text does, not on that so much as the role that we will have. The new heavens and new earth will restore all things. It will restore man to his created role. We read about that later in chapter 22. We're told that his servants will worship him, God. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. And we read at the end of the verse, they will reign forever and ever. I used to really not be sure what that meant, that we would reign. We sang about it a few times this morning. We will reign with him. What does that mean? Remember when we looked at the book of Genesis, we are told that we were created to have dominion over the earth. Genesis chapter 1. It's the idea that we are supposed to be stewards of this earth. If you recall, back when we were studying the book of Genesis, and if you don't, that's okay, I boiled what man was created to do down to this statement. Original creation was God dwelling with man, man who worships, obeys, and stewards towards confirmation, towards completion. There was a job man had to do to have dominion over the earth and bring it into its fullness, and then man would be confirmed and completed, and God would be able to dwell with man in this perfect existence eternally. But that didn't happen. We already looked at some of the reasons why. Now it is happening because of the new creation. Because because man is steward over the earth. That's why the earth was cursed in the first place when man sinned. 
because of our responsibility over the earth. So now we're told again, we will reign over the earth. Now, this is not dependent on the earth being renewed. It's the reverse. It comes at the same time because God is making all things new, but it's because of a different cause. What causes man to be renewed and therefore the new earth and the new heavens to be renewed? It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. We'll get to more on that in a minute. But now we get to what life was supposed to be like, what life will be like for all eternity. God dwelling with man who worships, obeys, and again stewards the whole earth, reigning with him in Christ's completion. It's not because we've done our job and now we can settle in and reign for all eternity. It's because someone else has done our job for us. Adam failed to do, and every one of us would have done the same. We would have failed to do what we are created to do, and that is why Christ had to come. He is called the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus, the last Adam, the second Adam, he is now able to make us live the life that we are supposed to work towards in the beginning. And then man is offered the tree of life. In this new heavens and new earth, we are offered the tree of life to take it. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3 so that they would not eat of the tree of life in their state of sin. But now we're invited into the garden on Christ's completed work and offered again to eat of the tree of life that we may stay there forever. Again, this is better than Eden. This is what Eden should have been, we work to, but now it is all done. So we have the created cosmos restored, we have man in his right role, but even better, we have the reconciliation of God and man. There's a reconciliation that takes place, and there are a lot of different ways we could describe the gospel, the good news of what is happening between God and man, how everything works together. There are lots of different ways we can describe it, but one way we need to describe it is reconciliation. And this is pictured in God dwelling with man. Sorry, we're not ready for that slide yet. Pictured in the New Jerusalem. We, we read in the first couple verses here. Verse two, I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Next verse, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will dwell with man in the new Jerusalem. Why do we need a new Jerusalem so that God can dwell with man? Again, let's go back. God dwelt with man in Eden, in the garden, the original garden, but very soon was kicked out. We are cast out of the garden, cannot dwell with God in his presence because of sin. Throughout history, though, God has made several intermediate plans, steps towards dwelling with us Again, the first one was the tabernacle, the temple, where he asked Israel to create a specific building that his presence would be in among them, the tabernacle and the temple. Then he escalated that, took it to the next step, where God in flesh came in the person of Jesus Christ to dwell with us. He tabernacled with us. When Jesus was gone, we're then told that we are now the temple. God dwells with people through us, his redeemed chosen people. But there will be a time, we mentioned this already, millennial kingdom, where Christ again will be back on earth in person, in physical body, to rule and reign. But there will still be sin on the earth. 
It will still be evil. And then the final, ultimate reality of that is New Jerusalem, where we will dwell with God in perfect unity again. The New Jerusalem. So we focus on that here. Uh, It's mentioned in verse 2, but then the next paragraph, verse 9, all the way down to verse 21, uh, is like a second account of of what is going on here. And that's why the angel takes John up to a mountaintop so we can see this specifically. It's not just the new heavens and new earth, but there's a specific focus of this, the new Jerusalem. It's kind of like the creation account. There's Genesis 1, and then there's a focus in Genesis 2 on God's focus of creation at that time, man. And heaven, sorry, New Jerusalem is pictured in a sense like a temple, even though we're told there is no temple. Verse 22, I saw no temple. But what is happening in the New Jerusalem is that that is the temple. We'll put a little bit more of these pieces together. Told it's not a temple, but it's replacing the temple. It is in this description, the, the whole paragraph of uh, verse 15 and, and on described its dimensions, what it's going to look like. Uh, if you understand the, the dimensions, it's a perfect cube that's being described there. The Old Testament temple, the holiest of holies, was a perfect cube. So this is a, a picture again of God dwelling with man. We're given all these royal descriptions, all decorative descriptions. It's going to have pearls and gold and gemstones, gold much like the Old Testament temple. But then we're told later on, it makes a little bit more sense, Revelation 21, verse 22, he saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That that God is with his people in this new Jerusalem is the temple. It is the tabernacling with his people. It doesn't require a building. There will be actually a temple in the millennial kingdom before all this a celebratory temple. There will be a building there, but there's no need for a special building anymore. God is coming himself. He is the tabernacle. And I think we should understand, when we're talking about New Jerusalem, really what is being said here is heaven is coming down to earth. I don't think that there is a, another place, heaven, and New Jerusalem comes down to earth, and there's still a heaven somewhere else that God could go back to if he wanted. I don't think that's what's being pictured here at all. Uh, we're, we're told in verse 2, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. I think it's heaven itself being exported to the creation. Heaven is coming down. God is coming down to dwell with us. We're told that God's glory is here. His throne is here. It's not somewhere else. He is coming. He's bringing heaven with him. We, we sang this song, or we will in a few minutes, when we all get to heaven... And there are good ideas in this song, but slight clarification. We're not going to heaven. Heaven's coming to us. We don't have to get to heaven. God is doing the work. And this is what he's been preparing to do for years. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, this is the prepared kingdom that is coming to us. The new heavens and the earth, God just spoke and they are recreated. But he's been preparing this because he's been preparing us, his people. Now, if we understand that God is going to dwell with man, we have to understand there are a lot of moral implications of that. It's not just a simple matter of geography or a location. Why is not God not dwelling with man? Because man has separated, sin has separated man from God. So if God is going to dwell with man, 
that has to be taken care of. There has to be forgiveness. There has to be justification that is offered here. And those who are going to be in his presence have to be forgiven, justified sinners. We read some of these verses in verse 5 and 6. I'm sorry, that's the wrong paragraph. Verses 7 and 8. There's a difference between who will be in this kingdom, in God's presence, and who will not be. There are conquerors, and then there are the sinners, the cowardly, the faithless, that we are told. We're told that those who will be allowed in are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those whose faith is in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Those who have tasted of the water that is being offered to them. We're told later, chapter 22, verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life. Who can be in this city and eat of the tree of life? Those whose robes are washed. We're told in a different chapter in Revelation that robes are washed in the blood of the lamb. Not like Adam and Eve who were given robes from an, an actual lamb to cover their sin, and whose blood temporarily covered their sin, those who are going to be in this kingdom in God's presence are pictured as those who have, are dressed in white robes because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. God's, Jesus' blood has washed their sin away. They have put their faith in Christ dying on the cross for them. If you're an ABF with us this morning, it's discouraging, even gut-churning at times to hear people's rejection of that idea that God has died for us, for my sins. That's exactly what is being told here. That's exactly the criteria for those who will be able to be in God's presence. Pastor Zach preached from Colossians and was in Colossians chapter one a while ago, but we read these verses this morning. In him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, through Jesus, is pleased to reconcile to himself all things. We're talking about the reconciliation of all things, right? It's because of Jesus, and he's doing all these things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of the cross. There is no new heavens and new, new earth. There is no man restored to his right position over creation. There is no reconciliation with God without the blood of his cross. told in Revelation 22, verse 4, that we will be able to see his face. Do we understand what that means? Why, is it, why does it matter if we can see God's face? Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, we are told we cannot see his face. But here we get to see his face. If, if in our sinful state we stood before God's presence, we would perish immediately because of his holiness. That is taken away, washed by the blood of the cross. Another promise here for those who will be in his presence is the promise of adoption. We read in verse 7. I will be his God and he will be my son. All of these things, all of these details, this is the idea we have with the term we use, glorification. All the promises of their gospel are final 
and complete and man is glorified. We're not glorified in the sense that God is, but we are brought to where we will be in glory forever. We're given the glory that we are supposed to be created with. This is just the, the final completion of that. Everything will be as it should have been. And this should ring to us as a sound of victory, a cry of victory. Everything is as it should be. All the sad things are untrue. We are where we're supposed to be because of what Jesus has done. He has conquered every foe, and everything is as it should be. Of course, we're looking at this, what's to come, future. We don't know how long that will be, but we're looking at this, an expectation. But we are offered a foretaste of that now. The gospel is not just wait for all the good things that are coming. There are good things to come that we don't even understand yet how good they're going to be. But we're offered the beginning of that now in the work of Jesus Christ, in the gospel. And if you understand how this whole series is supposed to work, this is act three of God giving life. Act one was God's original creation. Act two, which we kind of skipped over with all the change in our schedule um, over, the, over the past several months with Pastor Zach coming, Act 2 would have been regeneration. God giving life to dead sinners like us. Now, on this earth, in the middle of enemy territory, that we're brought to life and we're able to be some of what we were created to be. Now, we don't have to wait till the end. That's Act 2. We can taste of those things now. Today we celebrate 77 years ago, the, uh, the what's it called? D-Day, <laughs> sorry, blank there. 77 years ago, D-Day, the beginning of the end of World War II. Some of you heard me talk about this in ABF already. We are between D-Day and the end of World War II. We're between when Jesus died on the cross and promised us all these things, and we're between where all these things will come true. But we get to taste of it now. We get to taste of adoption. We can be called God's son now. We can have access to him as a son of God. We can be reconciled to God now. There's actually peace between God and those who have faith in Christ now. You can be clothed in Christ's righteousness now. Not actually righteous, but imputed righteousness. You can be credited as righteous now. One more aspect to this. This is individual and this is corporate. All these things are true of us individually, if we will be in God's presence, if we, our hope is in Christ, but there's a corporate aspect to this too. The city is called the bride. He's using different imagery here. It's, it's a city, it's a temple, but it's not a temple. It's also called the bride. And we understand the rest of scripture The bride is not a a singular individual reference. It is the corporate body of Christ. We, the church, are called the bride of Christ. God also addressed the nation of Israel as the bride of Christ. And that's why it's pictured here in the description of the new Jerusalem in verse uh, 11, 12, 13, 14. There are uh, 12 gates which represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They're part of the structure. Israel is part of the bride. 
We're also told that there are uh, the 12 pearls, which are the 12 apostles. The church is pictured here in the foundation of the new Jerusalem. I'm sorry, not the 12 pearls. The 12 foundations of the wall are the 12 apostles. When God speaks of his bride, he's talking about his people, his chosen people from all the ages, from the Old Testament, his people of Israel, and the New Testament, his people, the church. They are the bride. The, the, the city is the bride because its people are dwelling there with God, and God has prepared that. This is the, the promised land. It's a little bit different, though. Do you remember in creation, God created the land for his people to dwell, then he put the people there. Now he's going backwards. He has chosen his people and now he's bringing them finally to the place that they are supposed to dwell. Not just Israel, not just the church, but all the nations are represented here. Excuse me, all the nations. If we read in chapter 1, verse 24, the light that is God, we're told, is by which the nations will walk. The kings of earth will bring their glory into it. All the nations, all the tribes and tongues, there will be healing for the nations and the tree of life. There will not be any more conflict between nations. So God reconciling himself to man, man in reconciliation with God. The last part of life as it should be is the idea of God over everything, over all creation. That God is rightly, finally, ultimately ruling. He is on his throne. Why is this new? God didn't stop ruling. God didn't stop ruling the universe. Man rebelled, stepped outside of God's leadership and rulership, removed himself from God's rule. But this is really a whole separate point. I want to talk about this from a different perspective here. I want to ask the question, who deserves the glory? There are all these details we could look at. What is happening? What's going to be restored? What's it going to be like? But John rightly wants us to focus on who deserves the glory. As I read the verses of this chapter, we should read a few more in a minute. What is your attention drawn to? Is it that hope of no more death or pain? Is it the the hope of relationships that are going to be restored? Or is your focus on the focus of the text, on the God of this new heavens and new earth, the one who is on the throne? We can read in the Bible and we can be tempted to think the Bible is about us. And actually, if you look throughout all the chapters here, we look at creation, God's glory in creation. That's just the first two chapters, right? We're talking about the new creation, new heavens, new earth, and the glory that God deserves for that. That's just the last two chapters here. And other, how many chapters? 1,185 chapters are about how God is saving us so that we can be in the new heavens and new earth. We might be tempted to think that it's all about us, but it's not. Maybe that large number just describes how much we need to understand. God is doing a great amount of work to make it clear to us how much he has done to save us. But it's all about him. So you will read with me. We're going to skip some of, the, some of the details there in the middle. Read with me, starting in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp 
is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And his gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into the, it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit, fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Some of these things we've already mentioned. We've already read some of those phrases. The focus here is on the glory, the supremacy, the worthiness of God. Who deserves the glory? God and the Lamb. We've read that a few times. God and the Lamb. The focus is on Jesus and God the Father. Now, there's some Trinitarian things that you might need to wrestle with there. God, isn't that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father? Focus on the Lamb as well. Where's the Holy Spirit? Can't get into all that. There's a focus on Jesus and his finished work. But also Jesus' role is to bring glory to God the Father, to make the Father known. That's why the, the Lamb is described as the lamp. The light is God. The lamp manifests the light that is God. Jesus was on David's throne in the millennial kingdom, but then we're told in 1 Corinthians he presents the throne to God. And now they're both on the throne together. It wasn't just Jesus anymore. But now God and the Lamb are on the throne together. During this age, we're told that Jesus is at the right hand of the throne. He's not on the throne yet. But here he is pictured. Jesus, the Lamb, and God, God the Father, the whole Trinity, is on the throne. And from him comes life and light. God's glory is there. That's the light that is being shown. There's no need for a lamp or the sun. There is life. The river of life comes out of his throne, and the river of life feeds that tree of life. More importantly, Jesus and God, God and the Lamb, are being worshipped here. John confesses uh, that he is actually tempted to Bow down. He was in, compelled to bow down and worship. We would read in verse 8 down there, verse 8 and 9. He's compelled to worship, but he is tempted to worship the angel that's revealing his, those things to him. He's so amazed by what he's seeing, he just wants to bow down and worship what's in front of him, the angel. The angel says, no, not me. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets. And those who would keep the words of this book, worship God. God deserves to be worshiped. We see in the book of Revelation, throughout Revelation, a picture of why God should be worshipped, what we will be worshipping him, him, him for. We'll worship him for who he is. In Revelation 4, there's a song of those worshipping God just for who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Also, we'll worship him for what he has done. There are, we're, we're told in Isaiah 65 that Everything will be forgotten except for the things that God has done, the sins that we've done, 
things we've been tempted with, the tragedies we've experienced, we will not remember these in the new heavens and new earth, but we will remember what God has done. Revelation 4, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, for you created all things. We'll praise him for his creation. We'll praise him for redemption. We see that in chapter 5, those verses there. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom. Have you ever noticed many of the songs that we sing echo that theme? They remind us that we're going to keep singing these same things in heaven. Our praise is not going to change in heaven. To thee endless praise, for thou for us has died. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. When this poor lisping, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the same old story that I have loved so long. Praise God for the consummation of all things as well. Revelation chapter 11 is another song about that. So until then, what do we do? God is not silent in these chapters. God speaks. We read some of the things that he said from the throne. Verse 6 of chapter 22, we're told, These words are trustworthy and true. God sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. God wants us to know these things for a reason. We're told that we must keep them. We're told we must anticipate Jesus' return. Verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. And blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. He is coming soon. He's coming, though, for one, as a judge. Verse 12, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. If you are not right with God, if you're not reconciled with God, you may not anticipate the coming of Jesus because he is bringing judgment for what you have done. But he also offers you peace terms to come to him. He offers the water to those who are thirsty. Verse 17, let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. There is no price to these terms of peace. Come to Jesus on his terms before he comes back in judgment. He's coming as a judge and as a savior. How do you want to receive him? For those who know him as their savior, we eagerly await that. We should also live differently because of that. We should live like we're a citizen of heaven. We're told what heaven is going to be like, what the new heavens and new earth will be like, not just so that we can know what to expect, but so we can live like we're a citizen of that place now. We're given the example of that with Moses. He was looking, I'm sorry, with Abraham. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. He did not look for his hope here. That means that we have hope We have hope for all the things that are coming. And if there is anything that you feel is broken right now, the hope for that is offered in the coming of Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth. It also should train our hearts. We should want what is coming. We should want the things that are promised to us, not lesser things. We should also see 
and taste the first fruits of it now. What has God offered for us to be able to taste even now? We can be worshipers now. We can taste of God's comfort now and the hope he gives. We can also start training ourselves for what we are created to be. The, the role that each of us was created to be a steward of this earth, someone who will reign with God in eternity. That's not just something that happens when we get there. We're not just minding our own business, doing whatever we want to do now, and then we're instantly promoted to being someone who is worthy to rule the earth with Christ. At the same time, I'm not saying that we have to work ourselves to earn that or to make ourselves entirely ready. What I mean is, if we are somewhere between D-Day and the end of the Third Reich, are we just going to sit on our hands? Are we just going to live like everything is okay? That this occupied world that we live in is a comfortable place to live and we're, we're fine with that? No. We have the wartime mentality not against flesh and blood, not against things that are temporary. First of all, it needs to be against our own heart. If you were given a diagnosis of lung cancer, it's an easy one because it normally is associated with a specific cause, right? Smoking normally leads to lung cancer. If you had, say, smoked, have lung cancer, it's close to being terminal, but the doctor says, there's a way that we can save you. We can, we can do this transplant. I'm not sure how realistic that is, really. But we can do this transplant, but it's going to be in a couple months. Would you smoke the next day? Would you smoke that whole time? Well, as long as my transplant's coming, I can do whatever I want. Why would you go back to what has almost caused your death? That is what sin is for us. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? That's why Pastor Matt's text last week in 2 Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We must be differently now because we know what is coming. If we know what's coming, ultimately, sorry, we need to worship. Can't forget that. We'll do that more in a little bit. But if we know what's coming, we must invite others to that as well. This is not just a special gift to you. This is to be invited. Everybody is to be invited. This is to be offered to everybody. The water is offered to all thirsty without price. The spirit and the bride say, come. The church exists to say, come to those who are thirsty, and let the one who hears, if you've heard God's word, if you've tasted the water, let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I'm going to close with a song. We're going to say the words, sing and shout the victory. Let's praise God for the victory, and let's live in that victory now.